Welcome to Mudville, a podcast about baseball and cinema. I'm Brody Stout. I'm Nolan Rabine. We hope you enjoy. Okay, we're here. Wow, that was a loud one. <laughs> that was a that was a professional burp. I think I'm gonna put that right at the very start, so Probably it's gonna should. like fade out from the intro, and it's gonna go. <laughs> it's better than the clap slate. I'm not gonna actually do that. No, you should. Yeah, maybe should. <laughs> it's Mudville. We're back. What's today? August fifteenth. August fifteenth. Yeah, we're August halfway 15th. through the month. Uh, it's fantasy baseball trade season, and oh man, am I have I been in the thick of it tonight? <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned uh, I walked out of my room and you threw up the fact that you have been active at the deadline. So what'd you do? So I'm, I'm in a few different uh, dynasty leagues and uh, both of them, we have our trade deadline this week, but we replaced a couple of inactive teams that had been at the very bottom of the league that had just been like racking up losses that happens like we, in every fantasy baseball league well it happens in yeah and like dynasty especially because like you have teams that as as they realize they aren't going to compete they they sell off their players to the teams that are those teams trade their prospects yeah, it sounds and like, like baseball yeah and and it's like it's certainly like strategy for both teams but you know on an individual season basis it definitely leads to a lot of top heavy teams and a lot of very bottom-heavy teams. And in this league in particular, we had three teams Sounds like baseball. that were like a combined 5 and 50 or something absurd. And it had just led to like every other team in the league being part of the playoff picture. Right. Um, and so this week, we just replaced two of those inactive guys. Those teams that had been inactive had not been trading veterans not been been making any moves like picking up any prospects or whatever like like you would hope that they joined uh and we had a a couple of big trades go down that have really just opened up the floodgates and this is a full dynasty league it's 14 teams we have really deep rosters so we've been seeing some super complex trades going down um i'm doing really like interesting thing at the deadline i'm doing like a buy sell at the same time just tonight even in the the span of like an hour i traded away uh scherzer for a package centered around taj bradley and colson montgomery to get back some picks which i was super excited about but i was like oh i just lost a lot of like immediate pitching value uh and so then i went out and i made two more trades and i acquired uh aaron nola jordan montgomery and sonny gray so uh, I'm the. Who are you, the Yankees? <laughs> Good God! Well, if I was, they would all need surgery immediately. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm the reigning champion in that league. You'd have and, to uh, roster Doctor Elitrosh. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm. I'm feeling a lot better now about my team. You know, I've got uh, I've got a very strong core in there. I've got Shohei, of course. Uh, then Jordan, Wit. I had eh, all a, bad. Alleged. Wait, which Wit? Merrifield or Junior? Why would I have Witt and Merrifield? I don't know. You throw him in there. Why would I highlight it's his him name? If I, I don't. It's his him? name. It'd be like, oh yeah, man. My team is stacked. Wit, we got the David Wit, Fletcher, <laughs> Ryan McMahon. Coming yeah. in hot. <laughs> uh, if you were gonna have Wit, I think you would have to say Wit Junior. Like I don't think he's like Wit. You don't call him Wit. Yeah. Like, well, that's not I had to move Bobby Wit just this week from third base to short. He's a full name guy. 
yeah, no, like Bobby Witt. He's like yeah. he's Bobby Witt. Well, his his father Whit was Jr. also Bobby Witt. So That's, yeah, but he's actually Bobby Witt. That's why like you'd say like Witt Jr. or yeah. like Bobby. Like you would say Bobby. I I don't know. I like just Bobby Witt Jr. for him being able to. Yeah, no, I get that. BWJ. But yeah, That's, those are terrible initials. Awful initials. By. Yeah, no, he, he's, he's no so, JBJ. I hear that, and I think George W. Bush. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not trying to trade for Dick Cheney, but um, I had to move Wit this week from third base to short because my starting shortstop is an alleged friend of Epstein. Uh, not going to talk about that too much on the pod until we have more information oh about it. But I just, oh yeah, and I also traded last night for uh, Manny Machado. Those so. are not the allegations, but they're they're like, we will you know, they aren't certainly familiar. talk about what's been going on with uh, Wander Franco from the Rays, but uh, it's an active investigation. I don't. Don't want to say anything that isn't true say anything it's foolish uh isn't looking good for him no it's like uh no it looks bad actually it looks it looks quite bad <laughs> it looks not bad. um but uh yeah but, so that you know, that didn't help my team but i did make a couple moves so, we'll so that yeah not even gonna blink you know just we gotta make a gotta make a full throttle approach for uh back-to-back titles but yeah, that's enough. been my week what have you been up to okay so i was in woodstock this weekend um, it's kind of it. I haven't been doing other much. Doing other some than that. acid. But I, 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 don't, <laughs> I don't associate much with Woodstock. Woodstock is uh, like, like Jimi Hendrix. Weed. I I did not do any drugs in Woodstock. Oh, say do can you see anymore in general? I was in Woodstock. There were uh everybody that we met was definitely either on acid or you know was high. Nice. Um, high on something. Everyone was definitely high on something. But it was uh, it was quite the time. It was a good time. It is if you heard that there ask. is a town full of, you know, 60, 70 year old hippies, it's exactly what you want. Like there was um like it's it's what you want it to be knowing that. Like there was uh, we went out to go see um my mom's friend has uh her husband has a band. He's an insane guitar player. It was really fun. And then <laughs> the crowd that we were with uh, like there are people just like rolling in from the street and like all the it's just like all these old hippies like really really long silvery hair long beards headbands like you know exactly what you're expecting um, or at least what you would have expected in you know the 60s uh, but these are all people who like smoked weed once when they were like 14 in 1969 and then like made it their whole personality for 60 years again it's exactly what you would want permanent deadheads uh, yeah exactly and so there was this one guy that i i will never forget him until the day i die he was like he had this really long white beard this like kind of gross hair a like a blue headband and these really thick giant like 90s glasses and he was wearing a one-piece t-shirt <laughs> and like and he was fucking cutting it up he got up there and started dancing like all these people were dancing by the way um and at one point um bryce like leans over to me and she goes why does this look like the peanuts christmas special <laughs> <laughs> it really did oh, it really did they had some moves um but there was uh there was this one guy who was doing this like okay so he was wearing a black sweater and he's bald. He kind of he looks like uh, I don't know. Like picture in your head like a retired cop who calls into WFAN. Just every Yankee fan. Okay. Like yeah, but like you know five eight bald goatee, oh, yeah. kind of fat. But like you know clearly has seen a lot. He looked kind of Brett a Gardner little bit like Billy like Joel sixty pounds. No, he looks like Billy Joel now. Oh, okay. Like you know, it's like this guy. He was the highest man I have 
ever seen in my life. And that's really saying something living in the city. I mean, you see some some true characters. You see a lot of things. You see a see. lot of things. You, this you get man, exposed to a vast array of humanity. You, you get a you get a you know a sampling platter of what we as humans have to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, some good, some bad. What we bring to the table, some might yes. say. Yes. Yeah. This guy, I, I swear to God, he's the highest person I've ever seen in my life. He gets up and he starts dancing and he's doing this like really slow like like bird flapping motion and like the music by the way is like you know upbeat like it's 70s rock music or whatever and he's just completely like not in time just doing this like really slow like up down like like bird flapping and then he starts doing these like weird hand motions he's like swirling his wrists and he's like you know, it's all the energy is moving from his heart to the tips of his fingers in like, you know, slow motion. And then at one point he he got stuck in a pose that he had like struck while dancing. Like he does this like he brings his knees in together a little bit and then he like throws his arms like over his head a little bit. Like they're kind of like like uh, a little bit like thriller, but like only one was up and the other one was coming from the bottom. Sure. And thrill. He he got stuck. I swear, like he just like was not able to move anymore, and this this guy tried to like he had to get around him. We were in the front of this area, by the way, and there was like where we were and the stage. There was like eight feet maybe, and all these people were dancing in that eight feet section. So we were like right next to all of this happening, um, and this guy he's right in front of us, and he gets stuck. And somebody was trying to get by him, <laughs> and. He, like, was waiting for him to move, and he didn't realize that our buddy was stuck. So he was just, like, kind of looking at him, and then I think he realized eventually that he was just not going to move. So he had to, like, sidle by him <laughs> while, while this man who's in another dimension was just trying to, like, refocus and, like, reenter reality. Oh my god! It, it sounds really like funny. there. It sounds like you had a, a weekend full of like physical comedy. Oh my god! It was so. It was really like, I, like slapstick. We had, a, we had a great time, but it was. Uh, oh, there was also this really, really old man who was definitely like in his prime in 1955, and he got up on the dance floor. He, I, I shit you not. He he leans his cane on the wall, gets up on the dance floor, and does this insane like jig where he's like moving so fast. And then, like, they made a circle around him, like, watching him and clapping. And then after he finishes his, like, dance routine, like, it was like, uh, like, I, what, fuck it, I can picture it in my head, like, a movie where they all, like, somebody's, like, doing the whole, like, uh, like, dancing thing. It's, uh, what, what movie is that where there's, like, um, you know what it is? You know what I'm picturing in my head now? It's, um, you know that scene in La La Land when Emma Stone is, like, they're cutting back and forth between... Ryan Gosling playing piano and Emma Stone dancing and everybody around her like clapping and shit. Yeah. The moves that she's doing, it reminded me of that, <laughs> except he's like 85. And, oh he, and then God. he finishes this. They all like applaud. He gives a bow and then he walks back over to the wall very slowly and grabs his cane and then like just continues like very calmly and like politely watching the show. <laughs> it's like, what is happening in this town? This place is crazy. I but feel like every week fun. you've been up to more like 
ludicrous shit I, the week before. I was just saying, people are going to think I'm making shit up. I swear to God, this like, happened. Like, like, like Last yeah. week, you were hanging out with a kid who likes Das Boot. This week, you were watching a bunch of dancing octogenarian hippies. Yes, exactly. You're just, That's just life in Woodstock. You're bringing man. us content, This man. is what we. This is why um, I do it. I go out thinking, this should be good for the pod. Post-trade <laughs> deadline, the movies all came out last month. We got another couple weeks until yep. the playoff race really heats up. Yep. You're giving us content. I mean, these old dancing hippies. Need, need I love some it. juice, and it uh, yeah. it seems like I'm making it up, or like it's not true. I promise. Go to Woodstock. Go to a band, any band playing, and you will probably see the same guys. It's just like it's what they do up there. There's, I guess, you know, that's why they move there. They like the music and shit. Also, walking around town, there's just like people playing guitars, and like, it's it's a nice place. It's beautiful too. I mean, it's like this gorgeous little town, and like nestled in mountains. This episode is brought to you by the town of Woodstock, yeah, New York. I went there it. once when I was like 10, but I don't remember it very much. Go see it. Good you know, shopping. If, uh, Good music. Some of the folks aren't quite as familiar. We are Mudville. We are a podcast about all things <laughs> Should sports, we have done an space. intro? <laughs> no, I think we, I think we did. But, yeah. um, you know, the, the reason that I wanted to point this out is that one of the things that we are invested in and interested in on this podcast is um, the art of film criticism. Sure. Uh, it's something that's become very important to me uh, in, in particular over the past few years and it's something that um, a lot of people do it has some fallen, people do it well yeah <laughs> you know i'm interested in film criticism i would like to do it myself eventually but according to the new york times maybe i don't have to because a bunch of people on tiktok have got it covered i'm going to read this this article today that was published in the aforementioned new york times uh the headline is they review movies on tiktok but oh, no. don't call them critics okay so what do we call them and then the uh, subheader here uh, on movie talk reviewers can reach an audience of millions and earn tens of thousands of dollars per post. This article uh, highlights a number of different content creators on TikTok, none of whom I necessarily really want to highlight because I don't think that they are necessarily the problem with what's been going on. This gets into to something really troubling here, and I think just the energy of this article is just pretty foul. And uh, I had to read it, so yeah, you all have now to we hear have it. to hear about yeah. it. Yeah, oh, here we go. It starts by talking about this girl who has three million followers on TikTok and goes by Maddie Moo. Um, okay. She's a senior at Virginia Tech and is sometimes paid by film companies to promote their work. Says she makes videos to connect people and to spare them the pain of arguing over finding a movie or not knowing what you're really looking for. So stupid. But okay. one title that she would never use might be the most obvious critic i just don't see myself in that light saying she is sometimes paid by film companies to promote their work that disqualifies her from being a, a yeah immediately you no longer critic. have anything valuable yeah. to say that, At that y- point, this article should be this is a corporate shill yes <laughs> um essentially coke 22 is among dozens of personality her last name is coke yeah k-o-c-h yeah like the brothers is, is she an, uh, uh, a niece i, I hope not <laughs> 
Coke, 22, is among dozens of personalities on TikTok, along with peers like Straw Hat Goofy and Cinema Joe, Excuse me. who reach millions of people by reviewing, analyzing, and promoting <laughs> movies. Several earn enough on the platform from posts sponsored by Hollywood Studios. In parentheses here, many have taken That's a break disgusting. from from working with them since the actors strike then through one of tiktok's revenue sharing platforms or both to make their passion for film a full-time job a feat amongst long-standing cuts to arts critics positions in newsrooms but the new school of film critic doesn't see much of itself in the old one rendering judgments or making claims that go beyond one's personal tastes are now considered antiquated and objectionable when you read a when you read a critic's review, it almost sounds like a computer wrote it, said Cameron Kozak twenty one, who calls himself a movie reviewer and has one point five million followers. But when you have someone on TikTok who you watch every day and you know their voice and what they like, there's something personal that people can connect to. Okay, so we're just exploiting parasocial relationships. I feel like there are just so many different layers to this because it's like these people spawned from a sort of generation of online critic who were on like blogs during the 2000s and were like petitioning for remember blogs? The Dark Knight to be considered like the number one movie of all time or whatever. Yeah, they got on, their wish. On, no, yeah, they, they did. They, they got their wish and that turned and, and it turned the next 15 years of hollywood movie making into watered down superhero right schlock um and That's so now you have word schlock schlock yeah big fan oh is good. that even a word or did it you is come up with yeah that? I didn't, no like it's it. a word i didn't come up with it all right it's good stuff mm-hmm. on movie talk as the community is known the most successful users generally post at least once per day with videos typically ranging between 30 and 90 seconds many attempt to capture the viewer's attention within the the first three seconds. This movie's perfect for you uh if you never want to sleep again, begins Coke's review of the hit horror film Barbarian. And I just want to note, I agree with that. Barbarian's a good movie, and I think that that is a good use of the platform, is to use that as sort of a... 90 second promo for a really good movie if you have a bunch of followers on sure. social media promoting it to them and expanding then, like it has to be advertised to that movie that yeah. is good that that is a good thing that is a healthy use of of your platform and that is TikTok social media being sure utilized correctly but it I has think to be like demarcated the problem, as an advertisement anyway go on well the problem is that these people are trying to blur the lines between what is a movie review and what is sponsored content right if this person is really particularly passionate about barbarian and they they were like really excited about making a video of it how are you going to then differentiate that from the videos that she's being paid by Disney or whatever to promote their the new sound like, of freedom show. is my favorite new movie <laughs> many creators most in their 20s or early 30s specialize within a particular niche Joe Aragon cinema Joe 931,000 followers is known for his Less than a million is getting an article written about him Jeez. is known for his breakdowns of what coming attractions Mons Gutierrez and Brian Lucius demystify and rank horror films Seth Mullen Feroz leans toward art house and foreign cinema again that's great. Sure. That's, yeah, we, we like that. That's, that's good. Healing to film goers amongst numerous 
genres. Uh, TikTok's user base is like super young. Uh, so pointing kids towards cinema is great. It also comes with a lot of responsibility, though, to uh, because you're you're certainly shaping the minds of young moviegoers and audiences as well, because they haven't been given the the resources to engage with art intellectually in, in a way that is anything more than just base entertainment. Right. In a lot of cases, I feel like a lot of kids now are going to have to learn or how to spot anything that's sponsored because everything is made to siphon off their money and i don't think that they are fully aware of that at a young age when you know nobody is when you're that young so like it's you know you have to this can turn into a whole other conversation but media literacy in general is really important especially in this country when everything is being paid to be put into you know put into your view put into your your vision where there's somebody who's trying to make sure that their brand is getting into your face and when uh, kids are really young, I mean, that's like, look, when we were young, I'm sure we had a lot of, you know, shitty advertising practices. Oh, that we, we were, we were always we being it. being sold to sold of things course. too. Yeah, Constantly. we watched Nickelodeon over and over. We like, I mean, all those like toys and shit that literally were like, you know, like Flome, like all the micro beats. Flome, I, I still remember. remember. Flome, yeah. Like, you know, that shit was actually like dangerous for children, but I wanted it so goddamn badly. I but can like... Those were commercials yeah. in between the show that you're watching when you're like, okay, this is the part where they sell me stuff and now here comes the show again. And like, you know, when it's so... I mean, integrated is, and that's what they want. They want the integration with the media, so that, like, you know, with the media that the people are watching, so that it's not designated advertisement time. It blends together, and that's like what their goal is. <laughs> you know, it's like that's what they want, and that's really, really bad. Uh, I can actually remember specific like commercial jingles, like for cereal sure. boxes right. from when we were seven or eight or whatever, right. because they had these companies, these advertising departments that knew how to stick that shit into kids heads and that's obviously has only gotten worse over the past like i mean it's gotten worse worse over the past 15 years but it's gotten even exponentially worse even that over the past like five but again with that's the like fine revolution of tiktok and one of the reasons that i prefer film to television just as a medium is that it isn't being constantly interrupted by spots for ads and there is exist as a product placement is but you know. well yeah but it's very different from like commercial breaks every five minutes right. there is an incentive for the writers and the filmmakers to draw out the story and leave you on cliffhanger so you come back for the next right. episode and the right, next right. episode and the next season and then seasons go on and on to try to enhance profits and try to and then by the end the show that you love is just a is just a pile of trash it happened with the the walking dead is the number oh one God. example i can think of lost i think we're gonna see it too with some of these like mattel toy movies yeah, that are the next thing that are coming in like they're trying yeah. to force the idea that a movie can also be an advertisement and still provide some sort of uh cinematic relevance or art yeah. you know and Real quick, this is on a similar vein, uh, but we are currently watching the Rangers Angels game as we talk. It's on in the background. Uh, there are three ads behind home plate going left to right. One of them is Lockheed Martin. The middle one is Globe Life Field, which is the you know the field that the Rangers play on, but that's, I'm sure, an insurance company or whatever, whatever Globe Life is. And the one on the right is a casino. <laughs> it's just like there's there's no... 
escape from like you know things that you like being used to sell you shit even though one of them again lockheed martin why are they even advertising yeah like what am i gonna do (laughs) how am i gonna go support them what is that about like what is that for even as we record this this podcast we are being sold missiles military (laughs) industrial complex short range heat and the casino and the stadium where we're currently watching a game right um, Which is also brought to you most likely by, again, an insurance company, mm-hmm. I'd have to assume. The space that was being occupied by people like like Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, people who right. were public figures that were also film critics, their place and their space in the public mind is now being occupied by TikTokers who were being paid by corporations to promote products. That is one of the leading factors in the death of art as a whole. And it's something that that needs to be fought against tooth and nail at at all points. The people who make our movies in some way shape our minds and shape the way that that we think and shape our behavior. Makes you question things in a way that, you know, and like that even that phrase is now being co-opted by the right and like question what you hear is like don't get vaccinated or, you know, whatever. Um, or like, you know, a, a fucking like 18 year old athlete has a heart problem. They're like, it's clearly a vaccine. Yeah. You know, it's like, question it. Don't you question things? No. And even the New York Times, by the way, this is a uh, Times article, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's time for everybody to give up on the New York Times. Yeah. They've been writing gone. articles like your landlord is actually your best friend and you should tip them. It's like, you know, it's like, should trans people die? Yeah. We like, asked right. both sides of the question. Yeah. We, we ask a trans woman and also Jimmy from Arkansas. I'm going to keep going here with the article because this is where it gets really depressing they say oh it gets worse movie talk creators are not the first in the history of film criticism to rebel against their elders in the 1950s francois truffaut jean-luc godard and other writers of the journal Cai du cinema disavowed the nationalism of mainstream french criticism in the 1960s and 70s, the New York critic Pauline Kael assailed the moralism associated with Bosley Crowther, a longtime movie critic of the, the New York Times and others. And movie bloggers in the 2000s charged print critics with the indifference or hostility to superhero and fantasy films. Already in this framing lies a massive issue, which is that you are equating... Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, the people who made the 400 blows and Breathless and developed the auteur theory and who took their love of Hollywood cinema and what like John Ford and Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock were doing, Pauline Kael and all of these other people who just redefined what film criticism could be, comparing them to movie bloggers in the 2000s who helped usher in this era of superhero everything... That is just immediately wrong. That is separation between people who want to engage with cinema as an art form and people who see it solely as entertainment and who, again, led to this new generation of people who are now on TikTok being paid to promote like Disney shows. The fact that the New York Times compared these people to a bunch of quirky dipshits who think everybody was too hard on Shazam, Fury of the Gods, is fucking embarrassing. It should be obvious to anybody who has even like a modicum of awareness of how these production companies work or not even just production companies, just how any corporation in this country works is like they want your attention and they pay a shit ton to get it. So anything where you 
regularly pay attention, they will find a way to weave their way into it. That's why sports is so ingrained with, you know, all of these advertisements and not just, uh, you know, not just weird brands, but especially betting. Cause that's like, I mean, I'm assuming they get a giant fucking cut at the end of the season or in the during of, you know, all the money that people lose betting. And that's not, you know, you can't fucking watch a game in any sport without seeing a million things from like sports books. And just, it's just all very gross and it's all very depressing and it's getting, uh, very difficult to find anything where it's not being completely fucking corrupted by money. Except here. And Except this episode here, is um, brought to you by Lockheed Martin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm close to being done with this yeah. this article here, but I did want to highlight just two more paragraphs. I think in, Do you need a new laser guided missile? Anyway, go on. <laughs> I think in an article full of damning sentences, these this contains some of the worst of them here. Uh, this is talking about a a different guy, one of these other YouTube creators. Seven years ago, Green started a movie-themed channel on YouTube, which favors long, more produced videos, but abandoned it after the birth of his first child. On TikTok, he found that he could reach an enormous audience with relatively little effort. He said one of his first videos on the platform, a post from January 2020 about Tom Holland in Avengers Endgame, oh, got over 200,000 views in an hour. I had a feeling like I was meant to do this, he said. Oh, no. Dude. And then we go, Green's client. Here we, Yeah, here we go. This is the most damning part of it all. Okay. Green's clients have included Disney, Paramount, and Warner Brothers, among others. Oh, some nice indie and art house studios january universal paid him to create a post at the nfl game promoting the movie megan that received nearly seven M3 million game. views part of a marketing campaign that helped the film earn 30.2 million dollars in the u.s and canada on the opening weekend uh-huh. this is not a venn diagram once you're being paid to promote new studio releases you are essentially part of the advertising wing for a corporation yeah you are not you're an advertiser a professional film critic whose job is to see and review new movies to bring exposure to the filmmakers who deserve it and the people who are putting art out into the world and who have an ethical responsibility to see that those people are met with the public recognition that they deserve. Those are not two things that can blend with each other in any way. They are inherently incompatible. And I don't have any false pretenses that these TikTok kids are like the first time anything like this has ever happened. Like, I know that studios have always been bribing critics and sending well, them shit to give them positive reviews. But that's because... There have just been more and more hacks being associated with film criticism over the past however many decades. And the fact that movie bloggers were able to encroach on the space so much and turn it into a realm where there were so many voices all at once that you stopped recognizing which were the voices that had that held actual authority and which were the ones that were treating art with nuance and and with the mm -hmm. respect that it deserves and that gets muddled by opportunists who are just trying to make a quick buck so this article i because I, i've been sitting wondering uh this is not an article about reviewers this is an article about advertisers or you know marketers like this is people 
essentially who are involved, as you said, in the marketing wing of a given movie. And the fact that it's being framed as these are some fun movie reviewers that if you're young and you have, you know, your parents time subscription and they're like, you see something about, Oh, look, my, my favorite TikTok movie reviewer is in here. She's going to be like, Oh, cool. That, you know, now look how valid they are because they're in this article in the New York times. Meanwhile, if you again are aware of how these studios or any kind of corporation operates, you would be able to see through that and understand this is probably, you know, first of all, paid for by the studios to get these people more, um, visibility and more like an article like this probably just does not get written unless like, you know, like why would this article even be written if it It was just like this, it 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 reeks of being promoted by, by, you know, muddied interests, promoting people who will then promote other corporate interests. Right. Right. It all just plays along the same tune. And are we prepared to address how many more people will be exposed to these TikTok reviews than the peanuts that are given to smaller movies and independent filmmakers outside of like niche underfunded publications that have become diamonds in the rough? I mean, the Kai du Cinema comparison is obviously the most false equivalence that I, I could possibly think of. But it, it, like, if this is the only exposition that kids have to other people's interpretations of film and they aren't being exposed to people like Siskel and Ebert and film criticism isn't taking up a place in the public realm at all, then again, that's just going to lead to, on an even broader scale than it is already, massive audiences just lining up at the teat of the corporations like they have been forever. And the thing with those reviewers that you were talking about, I mean, you, you if you read them often, you were familiar with what they liked, what they didn't like. So if something kind of went against the grain, like if I, I don't know much about them personally, but like, let's say that Ebert didn't like, I don't know, like romantic comedies. Like generally always when everyone came out that was big, it was like, this is terrible. Like it, Once again, it's just like pandering to the lowest denominator, common denominator, whatever. And then one day it's, one comes out and he's like, this was genuinely a great movie and a fun watch. It's like, oh shit, like, you know, maybe this is worth watching because it breaks the the mold or whatever, or it made one of my reviewers who I'm familiar with his opinions and the way that he thinks, and I usually agree with him. He finally saw something that you know, broke genre that he, or like, or a genre that breaks his normal um, opinion or something, you would think, man, maybe I should go see this. Because again, you're familiar with the way they think. And if you respect it, then it's worth, you know, your time. But this is just like, again, it just gets so muddied when money gets involved because you can't take anything they say seriously. The context of, of film critics' opinions and their uh, intellect or, you know, their history with different genres of film or whatever that's all very important and that's one of the most like satisfying parts of reading certain film writers over a span of time is you get to see how their thoughts evolve and how their tastes change right. and that's not just with film too that's anything yeah. i mean no, any of kind course of, like you of know, course like um, when pitchfork gives a rap album a good review it's like oh shit this thing's good <laughs> it's like you know it's like and that stuff like that that just cannot take like they up, have a place yeah. even like you know absolute fucking like irritating shit to re- like contrarian shit is like, well, it has a place still because it's like if they like something or, you know, it, it just it gives a barometer 
right. where things are at. And this is just like it's all over the place. You have no idea what to take from it. Yeah, it, it can't take up the the same place as like life bloggers or right. advertisers on TikTok that right. are just making like 15 second videos. Because like it, it's not like big professional film critics are on TikTok. Like I've seen screenshots of like Richard Brody when they have him like super up close to the screen, like with his huge gray beard. Like no disrespect to Richard Brody, I'm not really trying to look at him. And I feel like <laughs> a lot. I feel like people who don't know who he is are gonna go ah and just scroll right past that. Sure. So it's like you got to know if this is what people are watching like of course like the masses have never had a strong like artistic relationship to some of the more like art house independent movies that have come out but this there there are certainly opportunities to steer thousands of people and to create new audiences for these things and to create new fans for art forms which have really gone neglected in the public cultural well, sphere for the so past like decades or so that's interesting though because like when you say the masses and this is a a very uh like philosophical argument because i generally think that people are smarter than you give credit for there's a, a very very easy argument to make you know to the contrary but i think with Things that are designed to be marketed to, quote-unquote, the masses. Of course, it's going to be lowest common, lowest common denominator. That's hard to say. Lowest common denominator slop that is like made to just be appealing at a very base level. It's not going to say much. It's not going to show you much that you haven't seen. Because when you appeal to everybody, the way to do that the best is to give them something that they are familiar with and comfortable with. And then nobody will really have an issue with it. That's why Marvel shit is so fucking harmless and so boring. I, it's Watered just, down. Yeah. It, like, so when you say that the masses don't like, you know, art stuff, which I know is not exactly what you're saying, but when you say something like that, what, what really the point is, is like, we all have different taste because you cannot make something that's very artful or that has something genuine to say that is going to appeal to a large audience in a way that, you know, a superhero movie would. And that's fine. Like there, you know, there can be things that are appealing to lunch pale Joe or whatever, but like everybody has different tastes. So you can't have that. But then when this happens where you have reviewers who are supposed to be giving their opinions to, you know, everybody on like, you know, little like, or on like indie movies or something, it's just, it, it loses the point because again, it's like these movies don't, they're not made to appeal to everybody. So it's just like you have giant studios then get, they pay them to put their product in front of you so that you can go out and like you've now have somebody that you trust who maybe something like said something good about a movie that you like that not many people know about. And you're like, Oh good. I trust them. And then it, because they're the only person talking about it, like you said that they're specialized in different things. Now all of a sudden they're promoting some big budget thing. It's like, well, I liked what they said about the thing that I liked and you know, not many people like that. So it's just, I don't know. I think I got there in a roundabout way, but you get what I'm saying. It's just, it's, it's a way to manipulate your trust of these people. And again, the whole exploiting a parasocial relationship thing. You trust people that you see a lot of, and especially if you seem to find yourself agreeing with things that they say. So if they can manipulate that and pay them to say what they want them to say instead of letting people form their own opinions or whatever on things that they genuinely believe, then it just, again, everything just gets muddy. <laughs> like the second that you bring any money into it. So it's, it's very frustrating. 
movies used to be made for like specific niche audiences and now it seems like studios have entered like for the past like 10 15 years they're like every movie has to be for everybody right. and what everybody likes is superheroes who quip <laughs> <laughs> that's that's america yeah it's what we want so let's go back to making more movies for more people and let's have them reviewed by smart folks maybe we can dream of a nicer world yeah all right well moving on Uh, moving on uh joey Votto. joey (laughs) Votto raised a very interesting we like joey Votto. we do podcast we do like joey Votto. he raised a very interesting question the other day on the old uh x Mm. which was what's that you get an entire year of major league plate appearances approximately 650 how many hits do you get how many walks do you get? How many gulp hit by pitches do you get? Ouch. And that question is close to being fun, but it w- was turned into something a little more of if you were given a season's worth of at bat, <laughs> do you think you could get a hit? A hit. One hit. So, And I have seen a lot of debate about this. There's a lot this, of morons who like And baseball. I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and we might be we might even get into a debate on this into one a but home run. yeah you, you certainly couldn't luck into a home run um did you see uh, foolish baseball's tweet what he said no uh, i did not he said i could get a hit and he tweeted the like norman rockwell guy like standing <laughs> up and it was basically his argument was like and i agree with him i i how many position players do you get to face over the course of a season we you know we're seeing a lot of like plays that should be errors that are being okay are but being you also still hit the bat on the ball <laughs> well listen i have a whole debate here more about getting the bat on the ball yeah um how fast are you because you could try to lay down a bunt well that's like, the thing is um melissa okay that, that's my, a good that's like the only caveat that's like the only wiggle room that's in there is like you know bookkeeping like mm-hmm. you know more things are considered hits than errors yeah than they used to be but exactly anyway, yes, you, go know, on. you could do something like that and i think ultimately here's my thought on this because now, wait, I, we should we should preface this by neither of us played high school baseball i don't i did not I play did, it but actually i you played high school baseball te- technically i was on a team i was on one of the teams one year and for context, I mean, the, the hardest pitcher that I ever faced live, I'd say, was probably throwing about, like, 83, 85 or so. I think I th- probably saw, like, low 70s when I was, like, and at the top end of Little League when I was young. Yes. And I flew out to left against that pitcher. That was probably, like, eight years ago or so. I got a hit off. I think Foolish is right, and I'm also going to put myself in the camp of I could get a hit. And here's why. Assume this is 650 at-bats spread out over the course of six months. I am automatically in the lineup every single one of those games, presumably in the nine hole. I would imagine I'm taking reps with the team in the cages then every day, practicing with them, etc. You know, a few years ago, I went to a team's spring training and I stepped into the cage and the batting machine and i took three swings against 92 i whiffed at the first two i was late and then i fouled off the third and then i was done i had to like run or whatever but with constant training i think based on those numbers i think reasonably it's safe to assume that i could train myself to make contact with a pitching machine throwing in the 90s on a somewhat consistent basis within like a couple weeks or a month or so 
Now, obviously, that is an entirely different world from facing a live human pitcher who is throwing erratically, throwing off-speed pitches, whatever, you know, trying to truly pitch as opposed to just throwing. And there's no doubt in my mind that I would not make contact with a single pitch in the first, let's say, six weeks of the season. Flail around miserably every single at-bat. Josh Donaldson type beat. (laughs) Look like a fool. But consider this. The entire question, I think, depends on your approach at the plate. Because the only chance that I would have going into the box, I know that the pitcher knows that I am the worst hitter to ever step into a major league batter's box. And that realistically, the only chance that I have of getting on base is if he walks me. Right. So he's going to be throwing strikes. So pump in the zone. Right. So hypothetically, if I didn't swing the bat at all for like April or something, maybe I would get lucky and draw a few walks over the course of the season. Right. But also any pitcher who walks me is going to want to kill himself. <laughs> so they're going to pepper me with strikes and try to get me out of the... It might um, even hit the, you by... But batting cages as yeah. soon as possible. Right. So how does that change my approach, right? If I know it's, it's going to be coming in hard and over the plate and I'm going to be seeing a, a lot of fastballs, I can start my swing really, really early and maybe I could get lucky and rope and rope one base hit out of 650. You right, know, right. Keep in mind, that is what we're talking about. They don't have to turn me into like a competent nine hitter or a big right. leaguer or anything like that. We're talking about one for 650. Now, as soon as they start throwing me curveballs, I'm going to cry. You're done. Yeah. And <laughs> that, but... What I would say to that is that also greatly increases the chance of me drawing a walk because then I could just I could lay off the off-speed pitches and more often than not they probably end up outside of the zone. So I think most pitchers probably aren't going to fuck around with me up there. Also, I'm presumably hitting ninth with the leadoff guy behind me. So anytime somebody's on base, I'm going to want to sacrifice myself to get the runner over and that would increase my chances of getting a dribbler down the line or bunting and having a misplay get get ruled a hit right if the third baseman starts thinking that i'm going to bunt every time maybe i could do one of those weird little half bunt half swings and plop one over his head point being there are many routes to getting a hit in a big league game and if i'm giving the if I'm given the training resources that, that big league athletes have, which is safe to assume since I'm in the starting lineup every day, I think they could maybe get me a hit by like late August or something. Right. I would never be a competent. I would be the worst player in the, the history of the league, and it wouldn't even be close. But is one for 650 possible? I think yes. I, so I agree with you. And here's the thing probably going to call us crazy because again the whole like you you know i could look into a home run that's not what we're saying if you give us lots of time and whatever resources major league you know players have to get better at hitting if we had don't forget also coaches if you have access to coaching Mm -hmm. i mean i think you're right i i don't think it would be within 200 plate appearances no that you would get one i don't even think you would get the bat on the ball you're right but I do think if I was given, let's say, six months, you're right, six months with seeing live pitching and working in a cage and working with coaches and having all the VR shit that you have access to, eventually, I mean, like, I, I will say this. I went into a batting cage last summer, and I had not swung a bat probably in about three years, I think. And the last time I'd even swung a bat was with, like, a friend of mine. We went out and we did some batting practice, I, you know, 
I mean, thrown what, like thirty, maybe like forty miles an hour, whatever batting practice. I don't, I don't know. We didn't have a gun on us, but like, you know, throwing very softly. And I, you know, like both of us would get some really good swings in. Like I hit a ball. I'd measured it on Google Earth actually afterwards because I was curious. <laughs> I like genuinely. I was curious. I want to know how far no, it went. That's awesome. Like I'm, I'm laughing in support. I hit a ball three hundred feet. Nice. Now, that is a very weak fly ball in every single Major League Stadium. And when I hit that shit, I was like, oh, my God. I felt like like Barry Bonds. Like, I was like, Jesus, that felt good. That was off like a 35-mile-an-hour pitch my friend threw from like, you know, in a double-A field. Like by second base that I like cranked to the best of my ability. And it went 300 feet. Mm-hmm. And I, I think eventually – and this is, by the way, after a while of like we would do this over the summer a few times – so eventually I got to the point where I was able to get some power, quote unquote, behind my swing and like it all felt, you know, good. Now, if you gave me access to all the resources that we've already mentioned and I was able to ramp up seeing velocities, like again, the first week would be a, a comedy show. I mean, I, I don't think I would swing after the first two games because I know it for a fact that in my head I would uh i would just be you know swinging wildly and the point that i was gonna make i went to a batting cage last summer and was seeing 50 to 55 miles an hour and i fouled off a few i got like maybe two good hits but at first i mean holy shit i was just like throwing the bat at it like it some of the worst i my girlfriend recorded it and i watched it back and i wanted to jump off a bridge like it was so 50 bad. to 55 like 50 to 55 oh, bro. and it made me look a fool. We got to get you back like, in the cage. That's man. I know it's been so long, and I used to be a good hitter when I was little, like in little league when I was playing often, and that that is enough to make me think if I was given enough time and enough resources, and I was able to you know really take the time and learn, you know, apply myself and all those things that you say when you want to do something well. You know, it's like if you are given the resources and the time, maybe if you are not seeing Garrett Cole. Or even, like, I was thinking about it while you were talking about it. Like, you Darvish is known for throwing, like, seven pitches. You know, he has, like, the fastball, the cutter. He's got the slider. He can drop a 12-6 curveball on you, a beautiful changeup. The whole thing. If you have no clue what they're throwing, you have no chance. Mm-hmm. Over, you know, 600, whatever. If you had to face you Darvish every day, it's not happening. If you got to face a variety of pitchers, like, if, um, you know, like, maybe there's, like, a like a, a a softer tossing lefty reliever who comes into the game at the end or whatever, and he throws like a 88-mile-an-hour fastball with like a 75-mile-an-hour changeup or something, if you can learn how to time up like anything around there and you can sort of get used to seeing something other than just a fastball, you have a chance to get one. <laughs> like it's, Exactly. You, know, like... You, you, just, you have a chance to get one, and I don't think – like I. Nobody who's walking in off the street and given a year of baseball, like not a, a calendar year, a season, is going to hit a home run. It's just not going to happen, especially if you don't, you know, like maybe if you played high, competitive high school baseball at a high level, sure, you might have a chance. College baseball, obviously. But like, you know, your average Joe Schmo showing up who hasn't played since they were, you know, 15 or whatever. Which is about when I stopped. So That's, this could be me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So like, I think I actually stopped playing when I was like 12, maybe 13. I do miss it. But too, um, there's a great John Boys thing. I just watched it recently, like the how to score 10 runs in the first inning and lose. They talk a lot about Steve Jeltz. 
And Steve Jeltz is like, you know, one of the worst hitters, qualified hitters in the history of baseball. And there was this graph that he put up about how he is like in the, you know, like eighth percentile, like John Boys, of people who have ever played baseball. And Steve Jeltz is like at the, it was like the 99.1 percentile of people who have ever played. Like Barry Bonds at like 99.9 or like 100th percentile of best people to ever play baseball. Steve Jeltz. One of the worst people ever to play professional baseball is at like the ninety nine point one. Yeah. So sure. it's like, and you know, like the fact that they sign up, like that's the, that's what you sign up for when you go into professional baseball. Is like the dudes who are like way down at the bottom of this scale who have no idea what they're doing are allowed to criticize you because you, you know, you enter into the fray mm-hmm. or whatever. And that's like, you know, it's it is very. Uh, it's it's fun to remember how talented these guys are. Puts and it like, all into perspective. What it would yeah. take to actually perform at that level, it's just not a thing that you can show up and do. Yeah, it, it's like not a thing that is just like done by people. Right. Like, <laughs> and and that's why like what that's why me even saying yes, I think I could get a hit over the like that feels very like naive to say, but I feel like any argument against it just goes against the nature of the hypothetical right. like i just feel like on sheer just giving them volume alone yeah. yeah with that much time and you being know? athletic you know like you you have a chance to get one and it, it it's not gonna come against you know cy young winners or even like you know five starters or anything it's probably like if you would have a chance it would come against a back-end reliever. Not back-end, excuse me a bottom-end reliever or like um, ikf yeah. or ikf but even then, I can't have a bit pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's all right. Um, but yeah, you know, it's uh, yeah, fun question. I like it. Me too. That's uh, that's interesting. But, I think I could draw a walk eventually. <laughs> like, yeah, that, well, that's another thing. If I got hit by the ball, I think I'd retire. That oh my and god, god I would cry. The end. I would cry. Well, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. of course, but I, Dude, I would cry and retire. Every now and then, I like I'll lay on my couch and like throw a baseball up in the air, and every now and then, I I miss. Like to the point where like I throw it too far forward or something, I can't get it and it hits my leg or something. That shit hurts and I'm just throwing it up and down. Imagine it. that's like I don't know, getting eight miles like an hour. Those things are heavy. Yeah. Like man. a ninety nine mile an hour fastball on the ribs. I'm gonna scream. I'm like it's just not 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 uh not for the faint of heart. <laughs> Mainly I had a Yankee theory that I wanted to get to. Okay. Um and this uh, refers back to a Bob Clappish article that was posted a few days ago. I okay. don't, remember, I think NJ.com or something, where he was saying that uh, no matter what happens, there's pretty much a zero percent chance that Cashman does not come back. Um, and it's like basically the gist of the article was like maybe Boone goes, but Cashman's definitely not going. And that was like the talk of all the New York media for a while. It's like Cashman's not going anywhere. What are we doing? You know, like the whole thing. And I have a theory that this was. Uh, put out by the Yankees. Not not that Clappish was like in on this. I just think the Yankees announced this or like said this. To, not even announced. I don't know how I found this out. I'm sure it wasn't like the Yankees press people being like, Cashman's not going nowhere. Print it or whatever. But like, I don't know why everybody is like a 60s Italian New Yorker in my scenarios. But um, I do that like, too. It's all right. Yeah. Um, I have a theory that the Yankees heard the noise that everybody and their mother was saying that Nobody gives a shit. Everybody is now rooting for the team to lose because if they lose, it means change. And so they heard that and they're like, well, we can't have our entire fan base rooting against us. That's not good. So maybe if we dampen that down, you know, and we say like, hey, guess what? 
even if we lose, nothing's going to change. Maybe they'll be like, well, I guess now we have to root for them to win. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, because what what's your what's your other option then if you think nothing's – like, that's what you wanted. You wanted them to lose so that things would change. Well, if we tell you nothing's going to change, you'll come back to us. That's not happening. Now everybody's just fucking furious and even more depressed. And probably jumping ship in a lot of cases. And jumping ship. And I think that they kind of, you know, if I'm right, which, you know, this is a bit tinfoily, but if I'm right, it completely fucking backfired because people have (laughs) given up completely on the organization. Now it's like, they're going to be awful for half another decade. Yeah. It's like, you know. No, I'm and. Stopped caring. Everyone's right. (laughs) They are going to be terrible for another few years if this continues. And it's just so obvious that Cashman is just a bygone product that is, for some reason, allowed to keep going. And there's, you know, a lot of people are having theories about Hal not having the stomach to get rid of him. Or he just, you know, it's a connection to George and his father and an era that he misses and, like, doesn't have it in him because it's the only thing that's left of his dad. And it feel like, you know, like spitting on his grave or maybe even George on his way out said you can't fire Cashman because he's the truth or whatever like you know all these things and people have sorry all dad these you're dead like I mean, sucks yeah at this point like we are we are at the point as Yankee fans where people are organizing fire Cashman nights protest nights like they had in fucking Oakland like <laughs> to get rid of this general manager because everyone's just so sick of what we're seeing and it's just not going to get any better and uh, you know, people who don't watch the Yankees, they're still they are five hundred now. They lost tonight. They're sixty and sixty. Well, I think that's been it this week for uh, the Mudville podcast. We are going to sign off. Thank you so much for tuning in. Could you, you get a hit over six hundred and fifty plate appearances? Let us know in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> let Joey Votto know on Twitter. Yeah, or um, us. I mean, you know, we'll listen. If you yeah. let us know, we'll listen. It, yeah, and we'll it, talk about it. If you send us anything, we'll probably respond. Yeah. So, I mean, we do get a lot of people talking to us all the time. Oh, yeah. But I, yeah, if you uh, if you come back at us with anything, we'll uh, we'll bring it up. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one. See you next week.